For our scripture reading this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be reading the first 23 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, again, pens these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. The last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's, at his coming. And I would also direct your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. We're asked, How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Our answer first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Beloved congregation of our great God and Savior, it's true for you, as it is true for me. Every Lord's Day, we confess in the Apostles' Creed, the third day he rose again from the dead. And let's be honest, when we sing or recite that line, how many of us think, wow. That's amazing. Something like that, such a confession as we are making, 
is, is something that should cause us to, at the very least, pause, at the most, gasp and be amazed. And yet, we don't. Because, frankly, we're so used to saying it. And that's why it's good that we have a system in our Reformed churches called catechism preaching, in which we go over the doctrines of the church again and again. And we're reminded this evening of why this is a big deal. We're asking again, why is it necessary for salvation that we believe that Christ rose from the dead on the third day? Why is this a precious confession for us? And the Catechism, as it summarizes scriptural teaching for us, points us, in fact, to three wonderful benefits, which in turn we hope to see as we look at Lord's Day 17 and see why the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is really an, an indispensable and wonderful confession. Our theme, then, as we look at Lord's Day 17, is this. The necessity of believing that Jesus rose again from the dead. The necessity of believing that Jesus again, or rose again from the dead. And we'll see three benefits following the line of the Catechism. In the first place, death is overcome. In the second place, new life is received. And in the third place, uh, in the third place we are assured of future glory. But as we confess the necessity of believing that Jesus rose from the dead, we see in the first place that through his resurrection, death itself is overcome. Now I'll just read again the first point in Lord's Day 17. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Now, we first need to pause and ask, well, what does that mean that he has overcome death? Well, that's just another way of saying that Jesus has defeated death. In Lord's Day 16, we see that Christ went all the way to death. His burial testified that he really died. Scripture records that his body had been wrapped in spices and burial cloths and laid in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And so, you know, we have all this scriptural proof of the actual death of Jesus. We have eyewitness accounts of the disciples. We have it on biblical record that the spear that pierced his side had drawn a mixture of blood and water, a sure evidence of death. We have recorded that the soldiers had refused to break his legs and that they later testified to Pilate that Jesus had indeed died. We read of the tomb being sealed and as Jonah had been in the belly of a great fish for three days, so the Lord Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days. But then he rose and he was seen, as we heard in verses 6 to 8, by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. And so this claim that Jesus rose again from the dead was not merely the testimony of one person. Not, not even merely the twelve apostles, even though it was just eleven alive at that time. Over five hundred, it's recorded, saw Jesus walk, eat, and heard him talk after he had clearly been dead and buried. Jesus, we confess, did what no one else has ever done. He overcame death. He defeated our greatest 
enemy. The wages of our sin. The result of our sinful rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. To quote uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and following, Jesus swallowed death up in victory and he took away its sting. And in the process, as the Catechism reminds us, Jesus makes us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Jesus, of course, was punished for our iniquities, to use the language of Isaiah 53, which, in effect, makes us righteous before God. If Jesus was punished for our iniquities, this makes us righteous before God. But again, how do we know for sure that Christ has secured our righteousness for us? How do we know that for sure? How do we know that to be a fact? His resurrection testifies to it. His resurrection loudly declares that his sacrificial death on the cross was completed and accepted by God the Father in our place. It demonstrates that the sentence against us has been carried out. We can think about it this way with maybe a, a crass illustration that certainly does not do, a, do the, the job perfectly, but gives us an idea. Sometimes as parents, when our children are growing up, we have to administer a little bit of punishment, usually in the form of a timeout for, let's say, 15 minutes. Well, what happens after that 15 minutes, if they have really sat quietly? Well, then they are allowed to come out and to, to the normal circumstances of the house. And by allowing them to come out, that release demonstrates that their wrongdoing has been paid for, right? In a small way, this can picture for us the fruit of Christ's resurrection. He suffered our punishment, the death that we should have died. He placed himself under death's dominion for three days. But then he rose again. He emerged from the tomb, showing that the sentence, which was really against us, had been carried out. The penalty has been paid. And now, that's why we may confess in the Catechism that we are now righteous in the sight of God. We're reminded again that a perfectly righteous God has set a perfectly right, a perfect standard of righteousness before us. His requirement is simply this. Perfect and absolute sinlessness. Perfect holiness. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And the question that we must all answer is, as we listen to these requirements, and knowing that we can't, we have to ask ourselves, how can I then, an unrighteous person, prone to all kinds of wickedness and inclined to every sin, how can I ever attain such righteousness as required by a righteous God? Romans 3 reminds us that there is no one righteous. No, not one. David reminds us in Psalm 51 that we are all sinful from conception on. Genesis 6 verse 5 gives us the shocking truth that every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts is toward evil continually. And congregation, this is where we have to begin, of course. We need to recognize and acknowledge our sin and misery in order to truly celebrate and appreciate the righteousness that is ours through the Savior that God has provided. Because which of us can say, even after conversion, that we have been as patient 
as we could have been with the people around us, with our spouse, with our children in this past week even. How often doesn't this thought go through our minds if we are truly converted? If we're not converted, it never bothers us, but how often does this go through the mind of the converted? I believe Jesus died for sins on the cross, but sometimes I'm not sure that I am saved because my behavior seems to say otherwise. How often don't we have that thought? And the longer you live, what you see in fact is more and more is the, the selfishness and the pride, the love for the world, the anger, the unwillingness to forgive. You see these things manifesting themselves more and more. The longer we live, the more idols we discover in our hearts. Much more than we first realized when we were first converted. And you see, it's when we start, it's when we see ourselves standing hopelessly guilty in and of ourselves before the judgment seat of God, when we recognize that we are separated by a hair's breadth from the raging fury of a holy God, only then can we appreciate the work of our resurrected Savior. Only He makes us share in His righteousness, so that sinners like you and I may stand guilty, no doubt, before our just judge, and yet hear the amazing words of His grace, not guilty, cleansed, righteous. The rising of Jesus on the third day secures that for us. Paul writes in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. See how he ties both in uh, uh, the, the, the death of Christ and his resurrection for our justification or our righteousness. In fact, one of the framers of the catechism, Zacharias Asinus, makes this comment. He says, One single sin unatoned for would have kept Jesus under the power of death. For he was cast into such a prison as to make it entirely impossible for him ever to have escaped except by paying everything that was owed. And so that's exactly what the resurrection means. Jesus has overcome death and secured our righteousness because he paid every sin for us. Paid for every sin. His resurrection signifies then that all our sins are covered. That no sin remains to condemn us because Jesus overcame death. But as we confess the necessity of believing that Jesus rose from the dead, we see in the second place that through his resurrection, new life is received. We confess in our catechism, second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. And so the second benefit of Christ's resurrection is that it empowers us to live a new life. It's remarkable, actually, how often in the scriptures the resurrection of Christ is joined to our being restored to newness of life. A couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 5.15, where we hear this, And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And then in Romans 8 verse 11, we hear this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. By being united to Christ then, by the spirit, through faith, we have died with him to sin. And we are raised, spiritually speaking, to a new obedience. We are resurrected to a new life. Now, does this mean that from the time of our conversion, we'll never sin again? We wish that were true. We wish that we could be perfectly obedient to Christ from the moment of our conversion. But we know from experience that this is just not true. We've all had our moments, I'm sure, as a converted person, when we have disappointed ourselves by the words that just seem to jump out of our mouths without our even thinking. We've all had our moments when we have questioned whether God is, is really there with us at every moment. Or maybe we have behaved as if we don't believe that. We've all had our moments when we thought, how could I consider myself converted and still commit such wicked thoughts and words and deeds? Here's the comfort. Just the fact that we ask ourselves these questions. Just the fact that our sins now trouble us is evidence of the truth of what we are confessing. That through Christ's resurrection, we too are given new life. The resurrection of Christ resurrects us to a new life, new attitude. In Him, we become empowered to fight against sin and to begin to detest sin more and more. We're no longer under sin's domination. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we learn that if anyone is in Christ, he is in fact a new creation. In Romans 6, verses 6 to 7, we learn that a transformation has taken place. Our old self was crucified. The body of sin is done away with, and we're no longer slaves to sin. We are freed from sin's absolute tyranny. And so this is the reality. We have died in Christ and been raised, spiritually speaking, to new life. Which simply means that we are no longer controlled absolutely, and led by the old sinful nature. And so the things we used to do so easily that never bothered our conscience now cause us to grieve. It now causes us to feel regret. It now drives us to repent of the things that we have done. We begin to hate it when we do things that we maybe used to do in former years and never bat an eye. The old sinful nature, you see, no longer holds the reins of our hearts. It no longer steers and guides us wherever it desires. And the resurrection of Christ creates in us that new life, a new attitude, so that my finger on the remote doesn't depress without my conscience being pricked. The laughter at the dirty joke is not as long and as loud as it used to be. The spicy words turn to sand in our mouths. Impatience with the customer service guy. How we used to take pleasure in tearing a strip off of somebody. All these things result in a very uncomfortable feeling in the pit of our stomach now. The new life we have through Christ resurrects us. And so we are convicted 
of all our sins and failings and shortcomings. Our passionless prayers. Our inconsistent obedience. Our mundane worship. We begin to see these things more and more and they bother us. Do we still sin? Yes, we do. But no longer gladly. We have been freed, you see, from sin's grasp. Sin has been vanquished. Never to to lord it over us again. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 11 that we must now reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he draws this analogy between the death of Christ and our death to sin. In a sense, Christ came under the power of death. But then he rose again. He conquered death. And the victory he attained is irreversible, unchangeable. Death died once and for all to Christ. Well, in the same way, we who are united to him have died to sin. There has been a definitive break with sin. We will move slowly but surely forward, but never backward into bondage to sin once again. The old sinful nature is defeated. The new nature, created and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Christ, now reigns in us. We are, we might say, emancipated unto new obedience. We are cleansed unto holiness and purity. And as resurrected Christians then, we have to keep in mind a couple of things that we want to mention. We might call these precautions as resurrected Christians. Little traps that we can fall into. First of all, we must learn to find joy in our new ability to hate and fight against sin. We must learn to find joy in our new ability to hate, hate sin and fight against it. Understanding that yes, we slip, We stumble. Our spiritual life seems to move at a snail's pace. But we need to remember that we are free from sin's dominion. And that, beloved, is reason to be glad. We must learn to be rejoicing in that, in the little victories. A second thing, by way of precaution, is we must be learning to live as resurrected Christians. That is, as the Bible instructs us, we must begin to be presenting our minds and our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, our God, who has cleansed us unto righteous living, which involves as well uh, plucking out the eye, cutting off the hand that causes us to sin, striving with the help of the Holy Spirit to bring our bodies into submission. And a third word of caution as we confess that the resurrection of Christ has brought us into righteousness. Third precaution, we must be very careful to think that, and this is a trap anyone can fall in, we must be careful not to think that just because Christ has freed us, we now have a license, we now have a free pass to indulge the sinful nature freely. What does the Bible say? We are resurrected to new life. And that new life is to be used for God's purposes and as God's servants and in His service, not our own. But as we confess the necessity of believing that Jesus rose from the dead, we see in the third place that through His victory over death, we may be assured of our future glory. 
And that's the third benefit that we find in Lord's Day 17. Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. And so the final step in our salvation, which is the best part, by the way, our glorification is yet to come. And that's at the end of time, on the great day of Christ's return. And we too, the Bible promises, will experience a glorious resurrection. And this is something that there can be no question about. This comes from the mouth of a God who does not lie or change his mind. We can look forward to this with absolute surety. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ guarantees it. Just as Christ rose from the dead, so will we when he comes again. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, Paul wrote this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. In the original context, Paul is writing against, of course, the false teaching that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. Obviously, false teachers had infiltrated the Corinthian church and were teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. His argument is very simple. Christ has been raised. Christ is the first fruits, the first of those God will raise and has raised from death. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith would indeed be worthless, he says. But he has been raised. And just as the first fruits of the harvest are, in a manner of speaking, the guarantee that the best is yet to come, so the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our resurrection. Being united by faith to a living Lord, we have the assurance that one day we will be raised like Him. We live as believers confident that these perishable bodies will one day be clothed with the imperishable. Christ's resurrection assures us that He has attained this victory for us and this surety for us because He is our covenant head. We too cheer in this victory. And this is our consolation, isn't it? As we think of our own death, when we remember that every one of us has an expiry date, we have a best buy date on us. We know that our time on this earth is limited. God has determined not only our birth, but also our death. What is our consolation? That Christ has not only overcome death, but guaranteed our resurrection when he comes again. When we consider our own death, when we think of the death of fellow believers or loved ones, as grievous and as heart-rending as parting from each other is, as Christians we know this is not the end. Death is not the end for us. Jesus has conquered, we might say, the, the final frontier for us. The spotless Lamb of God was not only slain, He did not merely die, but He rose on the third day to give us now the confidence that we too will rise to be with Him at His second coming. And so congregation, what a glorious truth is the confession of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is for us as believers the death of death. It is the beginning of new life for us. And it is the assurance that we too will rise to be with our Lord forever. We have a Savior who is not only our only comfort in life, but our comfort in death. As those who confess Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we rejoice and let us continue to rejoice in the wonderful benefits of His resurrection. Because listen, we worship not a dead Savior, but a Savior of the dead. He is the living Christ and His victory is ours. You take the resurrection away and all we are left with is what all the other religions of the world offer. Try to live a good life. Try to do the best you can. And maybe you might have a chance at eternal life. If we take away the resurrection, all we have in Jesus is a good moral teacher, a kind spirit, a friend, not one who saves us. As verse 17 tells us, if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile, it's useless, and we are still in our sins. But Christ is risen, and he has conquered sin and death for us, so that we as the church today may continue to announce the message to the world, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Amen.